Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. We're opposing this open pit lithium mine that threatens the water, threatens the air, that threatens to dis- displace a lot of ecosystems. And uh, the fight that we are trying to push forward is the human being fight. We all share this land together. We all drink the same water. We all breathe the same air and the difference between the reality of it and the actuality of it is there's a thin line and um, the reality of this thing is it's going to poison the water, it's going to take from the land, what's left of it is going to be a big pit in the ground. Today on American Indian Airwaves, protecting Pahimaha from the possible construction of the Thacker Pass lithium mine in northwest Nevada If built, it would be the largest lithium supply mine in the United States and we'll speak with an indigenous scientist who worked on the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 6 Assessment Report that was published recently this year. All that and more in protecting Mother Earth here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines In the first segment of our program today here on American Indian Airwaves, we go to the heart of the Paiute, Shoshone, and surrounding indigenous nations in northwest Nevada on protecting Pahimaha from the possible construction of the Thacker Pass lithium mine in northwestern Nevada. The people of the Red Mountain are an indigenous-led organization comprised of Paiute and Shoshone peoples from Fort McDermott and surrounding indigenous nations and supporters working to protect this sacred site from the possible construction of the Thacker Pass lithium mine. If built, the mine would be the United States' largest source of lithium supply generating over 60,000 metric tons of battery-grade lithium carbonate annually. The people of the Red Mountain are calling for support in demanding that the U.S. Department of Interior to rescind the Thacker Pass lithium mine project's final environmental impact statement, record of decision, and plan of operations. Lithium Nevada Corporation is a subsidiary of the Canadian corporation Lithium Americas Corp, which proposes to build the open pit lithium mine with a project area of approximately 18,000 acres that will use approximately 5,200 acre feet per year of water, which is equivalent to an average pumping rate of over 3,200 gallons per minute in one of the driest regions of the nation. 
Lithium Nevada Corporation characterizes the mine project as a green project, despite estimates that the mine will produce an estimated 152,000 plus tons of carbon dioxide emissions every year and will cause irreversible harm to the Fort McDermott, Paiute, and Shoshone nations, ancestral massacre sites, the water, air, medicines, culturally important wildlife relations, and everything else the land and water culturally sustains for the peoples. The Bureau of Land Management approved the mine back on January 15th of 2021 without adequate consultation of indigenous citizens and nations. In today's segment, we're joined by guest interviewer Irene Montoyas, who speaks with Gary McKinney and Joshua Dean Jr. The interview starts with Gary McKinney from the Duck Valley Shoshone Paiute Nation and of Fort McDermott on protecting Pimaha and protecting Mother Earth. My name is Gary McKinney. I'm from the Western Shoshone people and the Northern Paiute people. Right now I'm standing at Pahimaha, one of the many cultural sites out here in Northern Nevada, uh, occupied Paiute lands. Some of the things that led up to this point in us being out here standing is we're opposing this open pit lithium mine that threatens the water, threatens the air, that threatens to dis- displace a lot of ecosystems. And uh, the fight that we are trying to push forward is the human being fight. We all share this land together. We all drink the same water. We all breathe the same air. And the difference between the reality of it and the actuality of it, because there's a thin line. And um, the reality of this thing is it's going to poison the water. It's going to take from the land. What's left of it is going to be a big pit in the ground. But actually, they're going to tell you that it's okay, that actually don't worry, that actually there's nothing bad that's going to harm you there. But in reality, we know that there's a balance to this thing. There's a balance to this, the greatest mystery of them all. And as people, as caretakers of the land, as simple human beings, we're put here to live in harmony with one another, with Mother Earth. And our old ones knew that, that knowledge is ancient, just like that water underneath the ground. We don't know how old the water is underneath us, and so we don't know how it's going to react to this new world out here. The lithium processing is is done with evaporation of the water, and what's left of under the pool is what they use and process. And we're out in front of it by saying, no, this isn't going to happen because we have cultural sites out here, sacred sites out here, burial sites, and it, it means something to us. And it doesn't mean anything to the federal government because they think that we had funeral services for each passing, and that's not the way that it was done back then. You know, we we were all we used this whole land out here before there was borders, state borders, before there was reservations, before there was any of that. We were out here in a place like this, and we gathered, we hunted, we fished, and. You know, we, we lived in harmony on the land. Then somewhere down the line, the actuality of it, of living here on Turtle Island was the policies, was the lawmakers, and it's them that's telling you, actually, this is something good for us. 
actually, we need to do it. Actually, there isn't any cultural sites back there. There is no actual history back there. But in, our, in reality, there is. That's where we are. That's our fight. That's the voice that we have. And we're lifting up our, our ancestors and their knowledge. And we're willing to continue that tradition to protect our land because we're the caretakers of, of the land. And we can't allow these high-paying jobs to come in and take advantage of our ecosystems take advantage of our already small communities because that we call cultural genocide and we're aware to that we're savvy to it and the one way to decolonize decolonize ourselves is to realize that there's a difference between the reality and the actuality of living life over lithium we will always choose to protect our people and to move one foot in front of the other with the people for the people and we don't believe in in asking for these uh, these government agencies to speak for us to say it's it's okay it's fine you guys will be all right but in reality we're not 50 60 80 years down the road you know our unborns may see that 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 birth defect they might be breathing in more than coronavirus more than the smoke every summer and that's the reality of it that's what we're trying to wake people up to. And there are people who support that. There are still human beings in the world. We don't need electric vehicles. We don't need more batteries. What we need to do is just leave leave this Mother Earth alone and let her fix herself. Let her find that balance again. And what we will see out of it is the beauty of life. And some of the, sometimes, you know, we just we just need to be simple. We just need to live simple think simple and believe less because what they want to tell you is you know we need, we need this lithium we need to hurt the land to, to get it until you know until there's these things like government to government consultation that isn't happening they're fast tracking things so that they can get to this lithium and it really is is a fight now when you're talking about it like that tug of war but you know our, our feet are planted firmly underneath us and just like our ancestors that's what we want to do is protect our water and protect our air for our young for the youth for the young people for the unborn all the way down the line it goes and we want it to be strong for everybody not just not just the indigenous people we need everybody to be breathing this good air together witnessing the beauty the beauty of this and not the destruction that man brings <clears throat> the reality of it is we need to think more Leave less, and that's how we're gonna be able to support and the people that's wondering, you know, how, how do you, how, how can, how can I support from out here? You know, just, um, just understand that, you know, that we're still fighting this, this reality, the spiritual reality, and the actuality of what these jobs are telling us. It's not clean. It's, it's not no way to go. It's, you know, and the, the, I believe that the three main reasons for this climate crisis is capitalism, colonialism, and extractivism. And there's a reality and an actuality to all that. And that's what, you know, the people need to do is think that right there will will be enough support that maybe they, they'll see us and say, hey, you know what, I can't, I can't stand up for my people. You know what, you know, it is okay to be a human being, to love one another, <clears throat> to take care of these animals, take care of the water, you know, so that we can all thrive and not not 
go under, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, just being real about it and not, you know, greenwashing anything, sugarcoating anything. You know, we need to protect the, protect Mother Earth because she protects us. And that's the cycle that cannot be broken. There it is. Can you let us know what they're telling, what BLM is saying that they're going to use the lithium for? Uh, they say it's electric vehicles, lithium batteries, and they can't do any of this, any of the manufacturing right here. They have to network it to different places, different facilities, processing plants. And that's the scary thing. If this goes up, then the rest of them are going to come flooding in. And there's a lot of cultural sites between here and there. Yeah, um, go ahead. Uh, the brother Josh is here and he's with me now and he wants to, to chime in right now. My name is Joshua Dini Sr. I am Western Shoshone, Northern Paiute, uh, Walker River Paiute Tribe. So they have a five-year grant or money uh, out there for solar, for the solar fields. And so a lot of those filler, uh, solar panels are ran off of lithium batteries. So you have big projects like in Vegas. Um, you have big projects that are coming up near Reno, uh, Texas, all over. And so that's why they, you know, are really pushing for these lithium mines. They say it's, they say it's green energy, but it's not. You know, when uh, those solar panels, when they quit working in, what, five years? And then what? They got to re replace that. And so I am um, here because we have to stand together with our people. You know, I know I know this is a McDermott area, but our people are nomadic. And they traveled. And they say that uh, wherever our people were, and, you know, our people have passed away, our ancestors, they would bury them right there on the spot. And so no matter where they try to put in these mines, lithium mine, copper mine, gold mine, whatever it may be, they have to understand that they're always going to be on sacred grounds. We were the first people here. And so I'm here to stand with Gary and the McDermott tribe to protect these sacred sites, these burial sites. We have the wildlife out here. We have the natural medicines that we use. And so, you know, just throughout the past few years, I just really put my heart into protecting the land, protecting the water. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Gary McKinney and Joshua Dean Sr. on protecting Pahima from the largest possible construction of an open pit lithium mine in the northwestern part of Nevada and the traditional territories of the Paiute, Shoshone, and surrounding nations peoples. And now back to the interview. Myron Dewey is my older brother, and uh, him and I, we... we did this stuff together. We, we first got into it at Standing Rock, and I saw the unity there of the people from around the world. So I want to continue that unity here in our backyard. And um, do you guys mind sharing about um, what's happening with the um, in regard to the federal judge who's, for instance, the, the court, like I, 
I'm aware that the court rejected the evidence presented about it was presented by the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, right? And the Burn Paiute tribe that a massacre took place in the area. And this is yeah. was including written records and um, eyewitnesses of accounts of uh, federal soldiers massacring at least 31 Paiute men, women, and children at Thacker Pass. And this was in 1865. So do you, can you guys um, talk about that a little bit about the past and and the fight now to to make this a a, a um, an archaeological site, a, a cultural importance, um, or a traditional um, site and religious site for the Paiute people. Can either you or Gary get into to that and let us know, educate us a little bit about that? All right. What's going on now is um, <clears throat> well, I'll, I want to you know talk to the the listeners right now about. Uh, a little thing called the 1872 General Mining Law, and there's a lot of heavy, heavy organizations that oppose it, that are calling for a reform of the 1872 Mining Law because back then, you know, mind you, this was before electricity, before the light bulb. Uh, this was when donkeys, pickaxes, and shovels were, you know, mining in tunnels. And uh, you fast forward 150 years down the road, we we land in 2020. 2022 and we're letting that uh donkeys pickaxes and shovel 1872 mining law dictate how we move forward with electricity electric vehicles lithium batteries and so there's a big big reason right there you can tell uh you know why 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 we oppose this why there's organizations like the great basin resource watch that are you know have have these mining companies under a microscope and they better be on point or else somebody's going to get sick. Some animals are going to get sick. You know, uh, something's going to be broken out here. And so there's that on one on the one hand, 1872. And then you got 2022 now where President Biden wants to rush through and call it the Defense Production Act. And uh, after the prayer ride, you know, we, we finished up here and I had to jump in my other car and drive down to drive over to reno pick up a rental and then drive down to peach springs arizona and i got there uh about two o'clock the next day and uh, it was for a lithium convergence meeting uh, southwest convergence meeting uh, there we had representatives from the oak flats uh the apache stronghold movement uh, they're fighting the copper mine down there in apache territory and then we have the hualapai tribe who's, uh, you know, they're the indigenous community on the front line fighting uh, the same thing we are, lithium. And the same thing that, that they're doing down there is what they try to do up here. And been noticing that they're swapping methods and maneuvers. And, uh, you know, they, they, they want to rush through everything. They want to put a fast track on this lithium mine Thacker Pass. They want to protect it with the Defense Production Act. Why? Because they're scared of the people, simple as that. They're scared that the people can come together and we, we can really oppose this thing. They want money and we want life. And that's that's pretty heavy if you ask me. So we've been we've been doing everything we can to make sure we're opposing that in the public public eye. Uh, you know, we've been releasing statements opposing the Defense Production Act because it, it might cut out the the indigenous voices. They might fast track it to where they don't need consult with anybody it's it, it is it is that scary to us you know that's that's the fight that uh that you won't hear about in the paper and in litigation and 
you know that that right there has a lot of weight and so any one of these federal these federally recognized tribes can jump on the lawsuit and, and claim that you know they're desecrating sacred sites out here which they are but you know if we just don't know if there's an agreement between the tribal governments around here and lithium america so the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe, you know, we're wondering, are you in agreement with them? And if you are, you need to make it known. And if, if, if there isn't, you need to understand too, Fort McDermott, that there's a lot of cultural significance that tie in the Western Shoshones, the Northern Paiutes, the Modocs, the Pitt River Paiutes, you know, the Pyramid Lake Paiutes, the Burns Paiutes, the Shoshone Bannocks, the Bannocks, the Shoshone Paiutes from Duck Valley, and you know there's these different colonies in between uh but you know we we all have that that traditional legacy of our warriors coming out you know we called them runners back in the day to go check on things you know and and they they say that you know that that's not the way you're supposed to do it and they say we won't win by doing so so they want to fast track everything and shut us down but with these interviews with these discussions keep on going you know that's that's what really is uh, putting the fire underneath their their butts is um, you know the the people in asking those questions. You know, are are you in agreement with them? Because you should know that you're selling out the tribal, the cultural history, the tribal history, and it's tied into the Northern Nevada history through the the railroad. And you know that that's something that they're afraid of. And I'll tell you why. I got in contact, you know, recently with uh, one of the national historical sites um her name was is alexa alexa roberts she's the former superintendent of the sand creek massacre national historical site and from from our discussions this is a legitimate place to claim as uh you know we could put a monument here it's just you know jumping through the loops and they're not letting us see the loops here and so we're we're really uh feeling around in the dark but you know it, we we do believe in our ancestors' prayer that, you know, hey, the, these things are going to start happening to our people. And how are we going to do? How are we going to how are we going to continue? And that prayer was laid down a long time ago. And we never were told, you know, it was going to happen overnight in a year, in a couple of years, in their lifetime. But, you know, it, it, it was said and we, we find ourselves in those times. And, you know, as long as we know our roots, where we came from. We're going to know where we're going. And there's a lot of people out here that, that can, you know, testify to that, you know, that we, we predate George Washington in the United States of America. And during the times when the United States of America was becoming the United States of America was a civil war in 1860 to 1865. They had 22 massacres out here in the West. And Thacker Pass, it went undocumented, but it falls on the 21st massacre there was one other after that and that's when that's when the civil war and everybody went their separate ways and the gold rush was was happening and by that time you know they couldn't rush into the treaties and, and ratify them because you know the the plots of land that they had set out for the indians were being settled on fences were put up and families you know homesteading and whoop de whoop and so that made it impossible for them to to really justify those treaties and we have treaties like the the boise valley treaty of 1864 and you have the 1866 bruno valley treaty and my great great grandfather 
is on those treaties and so that's that's my big obligation here for uh, being rooted to this ground and you know because my 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 people my family you know my my grandparents their blood is laying out here and it's up to us to you know spread that word and you know open people's eyes because they're lying to us with this green energy transition let's just go out and say it you know these are people who can't see the trees the forest for the trees you know they, what, what they consider green is money and what we see as green is grass you know is, that's paradise to us that's being rich if we're able to be out in the mountains and not worry about anything and it's when we go back to to the cities and whatever we have to plug back in and we're back on a time clock you know up at eight off of work at five and you know it's stressful and that's that's the kind of system that this with them is going to feed into and we need our we need our young ones our our children and to know that you know we we hunt and we fish and we we sing and we gather and now now is now is the time where we put our foot down and we make that possible by any means you know because we're losing sight of what it really is to be a human and you know it's it, it's us you know thinking simply and honoring mother earth instead of taking and taking and taking you know it, it's living in in the old ways um you know they're not dead yet as long as these roots are sprouting, as long as these, these streams are running, as long as these springs are still here, we have we have you know Mother Earth under us, and she's she's looking after us. But it's when they take that away, us us humans take away the springs and the streams, and you know they 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 leave us with with the wasteland. How is that green? And how is that gonna help us people? How is that not gonna hurt us? You know that's that's the real question. The you know are we living in reality or are we going to continue to be told that this is actually that this is how it is? Actually, there's money to be made. Actually, this is the greenest way out of you know the climate crisis. But in reality, it's the capitalism, the colonialism, and the extractivism that's hurting everything. And we we can't ask ourselves why. You know, if we understand and we we respect each other and we honor life, you know, we're we're, we're going to see different. And that concludes the first segment of our program today here on American Indian Airwaves. We were speaking with Gary McKinney and Joshua Dean Sr. of the People of the Red Mountain, an indigenous-led organization to protect Pahimaha from the Thacker Pass lithium mine. This segment was conducted by guest interviewee Irene Montoyas and the organization, the People of the Red Mountain, are having an action on April 24th in Idlewell Park in Reno, Nevada from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. For more information, you can visit the People of the Red Mountain website at peopleoftheredmountain.com. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. died along the way. To those who carried on traditions and lived strong among their people. To those who left their communities by force or by choice and through generations no longer know who they are. To those who search and never find. To those that turn away the so-called non-accepted. To those that bring us together. And to those living outside keeping touch, the voice for many. To those that make it back to live and fight the struggles of their people. To those that give up and those who do not care. To those who abuse themselves and others. And those who revive again. To those who are physically, mentally, or spiritually incapable by accident or by birth. 
to those who seek strength in our spirituality and ways of life and those who exploit it, even our own. To those who fall for the lies and join the dividing lines that keep us fighting amongst each other. To the outsiders who step in, good or bad, and those of us who don't know better. To the leaders and prisoners of war, politics, crime, race, and religion, innocent or guilty. To the young, the old, the living, and the dead. To our brothers and sisters and all living things across Mother Earth. And her beauty we've destroyed and denied the honor that the Creator has given each individual. The truth that lies in our hearts, all my relations. All Our Relations by Ulali, here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, here on American Indian Airwaves, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with one of the leading indigenous scientists who worked on the recently published IPCC 6 assessment report for the Working Group 2 titled Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptations, and Vulnerability, which was published this past February of 2022. In looking at the history of the IPCC, starting back in 1988, Indigenous voices were excluded for almost 16 plus years. The fact that Indigenous peoples are working and contributing to the IPCC's assessment reports is a relatively new phenomena, and I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Nikki Cooley from the Diné Nation. She's co-manager of Tribes and Climate Change Program and the Interim Assistant Director for the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals out of Northern Arizona University. She is one of several indigenous peoples that worked on the IPCC's sixth assessment report that was published earlier this year. This is Nikki Cooley on Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptations, and Vulnerability in our continuing conversation on protecting Mother Earth. My first experience in contributing to any of these uh, these high-level reports such as the IPCC, and it was most likely granted through the existence of the Status of Tribes and Climate Change Report, the stack report that ITEP released uh, in August 2021. And so that kind of, um, we worked with a couple of the authors um, that then connected us with um, one of the lead authors for the North American Chapter 14 and um, we just kind of got all these folks together uh, that were well-versed with working with Native, Native tribes, Indigenous tribes, um, and climate change adaptation or mitigation planning, um, including Indigenous knowledges and whatnot. So that's kind of how that came about, and that was really um, a, a great experience. Writing these reports is never simple. There's a lot of going back and forth, lots of emails, um, lots of reviews, um, and kind of really, you really don't get to write a whole paragraph or a whole page. You are inserting yourself into other people's work. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so and then how you combine that kind of like magic, you know, and that really speaks to how well your team works together. So we were very lucky that we had, you know, Kyle uh, White from the University of Michigan helping kind of shepherd the process along with um Sherry Lee Harper uh, from Canada, and um, oh, there's another person from Canada too. But yeah, those those folks really helped kind of push that along. So, and we were very excited to be part of the report because, as you mentioned, the IPCC report plus other national global reports often leave out the indigenous voices. It doesn't matter what continent they're from, right. but I feel like it's just a an afterthought after mm. the, the reports are published and people raise their concerns and frustrations. Or, yeah, and we're just, we've always been an afterthought. Um, so for us to be largely mentioned and included in this report is... Uh, a small victory. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I, I know uh, in the past, I had the honor and pleasure to interview Dr. Daniel Wildcat back in March of 2014. And part of that, our, our conversation in the interview back then was how Indigenous peoples were, I guess, allowed, if you will, or permitted to participate in the production of the fifth assessment report by the IPCC. And, and just given, you know, the history of the IPCC being established back in, you know, 1988 by the United Nations Environmental Program and the World Meteorological Organization, I was curious, and when it comes to indigenous worldviews and philosophies and in, in trying to, uh, or in articulating, I guess, uh, I, and I know Kyle's written about this, right, the contemporary or this generation's notion of the climate crisis for indigenous peoples. And I think, you know, Kyle's written and, and others talk about for indigenous peoples, right, we have faced generations of forms of climate crisis, if, if you will. And what are some of the, I guess, the struggles, right, between expressing indigenous science or indigenous epistemologies perspectives in in this report and how that is placed in conversation, if you will, in this kind of Western European framework of this scientific document? You know, we we had a, the, the section I worked on was pretty, you know, small. Okay. Um, but, you know, small in the sense that it, it, we weren't part of the, the entire report. We're part of the Indigenous Peoples um, section. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because we, we were very much encouraged to talk about the, the climate impacts uh, on our people, on our foods and our non-human relatives. It wasn't, um, I didn't, honestly, didn't find any call opposition or questioning mm-hmm. of what we wrote, which is, uh, was surprising. Um, I think our counterpart from Canada who kind of led, helped kind of lead, push this along, was very mm-hmm. much encouraging us to really talk um, openly about the about the impacts and to kind of back that up with examples, which we have not, uh, you know, hundreds of examples, right. uh, references, citations, um, and whatnot. And that that that's kind of rare because I, I have encountered whether it's in a, writing a paper or a presentation, 
webinar, what have you, that there is always some type of pushback or some sort of pushback on, on indigenous knowledges only because they don't, the, the opposing party often doesn't understand, or there's not numbers assigned, there's no graph, and it's hearsay. So they kind of, um, the Western scientists, non-indigenous scientists or researchers, policymakers often object to the qual qualitative aspect of, you know, climate change impacts. And mm -hmm. you will have read that the IPCC, whatever it says about indigenous impacts, is no big surprise to indigenous peoples. We've been saying it for a long time. But Western scientists are, the Western world finally getting the hang of it. Kind of try, or they're allowing themselves to listen and, under, and try to understand what we're saying. Um, this is part of my whole work, my life's work, right? Indigenous knowledges. And uh, I personally experienced the, you know, the effects of this rapidly changing climate and its impacts every summer. There's already a fire in New Mexico um, hmm. in its early April. So, so with this report, it was, we were very much encouraged to push our agenda <laughs> in getting the word out about indigenous impacts. So, and that's rare. It's very rare for that to happen. What are some of the key takeaways from this report in terms of the work that you did and, and other uh, indigenous folks that participated? Indigenous knowledges um, is uh, science. It's an accepted form of science for understanding past, current, and future climate impacts to the environment, to the humans, to the non-human relatives, the wildlife, and the plants. So that that was I thought that was a big message that they that they put they put very high confidence in that. But also this indigenous knowledge and science um, that is that's data that confirms these uh, adaptation actions or strategies are valuable information for other communities to adapt um, or to use themselves. Um, and this is based on hundreds and hundreds of years of adaptation strategies and they're still being used today by indigenous communities um, and also and there's examples out there of what tribes have been doing and are and how it's being documented and you know what they're doing now it hasn't changed right, right. Uh, it the, the message has always been the same yeah. that we we know what we're talking about and because uh, we know what we're talking about because we've seen it we felt it we've experienced it and it's time that people listen and not just talk about the disproportionate um, unique impacts on tribal communities because of their location and where yeah how we're sovereign how there were sovereign nations that yeah we're we're very much adapt an adaptable society and and so that's a big um, theme in this report that I really really appreciate it that they put in there so hello thank you for that I you know and I'm listening to you there's just you know for all of us uh, indigenous peoples wherever we are mother earth there's so many shared and yet similar struggles and and yet different struggles so like you know back home in the southeast you know we have uh, a legacy of uh, the lumber industry we have a legacy of chemical uh, operations we have the state in North Carolina with the largest uh, factory farm 
uh, poultry uh, uh, industries, and you know, and we continue to see the ocean waters rising. What people know as hurricanes um, being more severe, and of course, through a cultural lens, that has um, a whole different meaning. And then, you know, like for back home, you know, for you and in, in struggles that we've covered uh, regarding uh, the Diné uh, Nation, that legacy of uranium mining, right, water, reloc- forced relocation, um, you, you know, a litany of afflictions. It goes on and on. And of course, if we move to other places on Mother Earth, you know, we could unpack all these different uh, struggles and these pockets of resistance and and how indigenous peoples are their their ability for to adapt and their vitality brings us to where we are today so how are you able to include all of these different struggles in in one report or did you just speak did folks just speak to common themes if you will we we spoke to it kind of like the overriding common themes that we found were very much applicable to any indigenous community across the, across the globe because we were very careful not to represent you know um, a region or a specific tribe um, so we were careful that's something that that's just a common practice with our in the work that we do because we work with so many different communities and so it's nice to have a lot of folks working with different tribes um, indigenous communities across the globe that could speak to the, that you know kind of gathering the commonality the that we that we had that indigenous peoples have and are experiencing in uh, from climate change impact so yes so it's just kind of the overriding themes and if you if anybody would read this report they would identify with what it's saying like yes that's happening in my community yes that is how I feel yes that is what we are um, struggling with or that's what we have done some similar things that we have done so yeah and I was curious uh, in the report does uh, COVID-19 and how it's impacted indigenous peoples and their respective first nations is that part of this report or preliminary uh, work of the report done at a time where COVID was just uh, beginning if you will for the the section that we did, I don't. We were. I mean, we literally worked on it a, a couple months before it was published um, and whatnot. So we. I don't think we really made that a big part of our our portion of it. Mm-hmm. And it may it may be mentioned uh, just a little bit in other sections, but yeah. So we didn't. I think we do mention it a little bit, but yeah, it was happening at a time where most of it was written before not before yeah where i don't think they really mentioned it i'll just say that yeah it wasn't part of our section and we weren't and we should have i mean part of our we talk about the health um impact so yeah that's what i was alluding to because just so many indigenous peoples or native american peoples right is as I'm sure you can personally testify to, and I know just the folks you know we've talked to um, during COVID, just uh, so many various adverse impacts, right, with COVID, and and of course um, you know that that changes. It certainly can have a profound influence on our strategies moving forward, right? Part of that adapt adaptability mm-hmm. that you're talking about, right? These 
proactive uh, responses to the climate crisis, but also synergistically compounded with with the effects of COVID. And that's kind of coming back to my earlier question about, you know, these cultural differences between Western science and indigenous uh, sciences is in the report. In, and I don't know if it's just because this isn't the place for the report or if, if it's um, intentionally left out, but the implications of um, the climate crisis, these intergenerational compounded effects of the climate crisis, you know, for some indigenous nations has resulted in uh, forced relocation. Uh, and some mm-hmm. folks are, are doing that right now. And, and as you know, as, la- as place-based peoples, as you know, I always just say, or kind of in summary, right? No land, no language, no cultural life in, in terms of intergenerational forms of cultural transmission. And does the report mm-hmm. speak to that? And if so, how, or if not, how come? The intergenerational um, teachings and also the the loss of, I guess, the teachings, um, is, is, it is mentioned uh, a little bit in there, kind of yeah. using Swinomish and mm-hmm. some other communities. But yeah, uh, not, not a lot. I don't think it was intentionally, I hope I'm answering your question yeah. correctly. I don't think it was intentionally left, left out. Um, but we do kind of, we do kind of mention that um, a little bit. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. And we're speaking with one of the indigenous scientists, Nikki Cooley, who worked on the IPCC 6 assessment report, Working Group 2, titled Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. And now back to the interview. The reason why I was asking that, because I, when we talk about climate change, right, man, man-made cause, uh, for most folks, they believe that, right? And, and a lot of this is done by settler colonists, right? Major industries, the oil and natural gas industries, and as well as many other contributory industries. But yet we don't talk about um, the complicity of um, how the climate crisis results in a form, a form of genocide, if you will, perpetrated against indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. And so I guess that idea that, you know, the, the effects of the climate crisis for some indigenous peoples could be construed as an act um, or as a form of genocide. And uh, I'm not sure if those kind of conversations came up in the process, or is it just strictly sticking to kind of the cause and effects, if you will, and the proactive responses by indigenous peoples? Well, I mean, the, the report does mention how climate change impacts the livelihoods gotcha. and also the economic um, the economics of, of the tribe and that, you know, you can tie that back to their subsistence and gathering and ceremonial practices. And that, that is definitely mentioned in there and how that's really closely tied to the physical, spiritual, mental health of Indigenous people. So that is definitely mentioned actually pretty pretty broadly in, right. in, in, in here in the Indigenous people section. So, and how different that the health concerns can be from the larger urban communities, um, or even just the, what the larger society, how they think of health impacts, mm. whereas indigenous people, um, the report mentions how um, the impacts really affect not only humans, but their close relationship to the environment and to the non-human relatives. 
so in that context is how we we kind of we kind of talked about it so the climate change impacts has a domino effect on the livelihoods and that li- mm-hmm. a part of our livelihoods right is with our ceremonies and our prayer subsistence and gathering practices and that is equated to our health mm. and not just a human not just a five-fingered being right. but the, all the other um beings the wildlife and the plants mm. the air and the water and so on so that's that's definitely mentioned in here so um Nikki, when we talk about uh, resiliency strategies uh, uh, and some of the work that you and others have done, uh, talk about some of what those resiliency strategies look like. Because I know like in the Northwest, right, indigenous peoples in the Northwest are talking and communicating with indigenous peoples uh, south of them as plant and uh, animal relations are migrating northerly. So as part of that conversation, right, it is figuring out as Mother Earth changes how to be culturally sustainable for future generations. So what are some of those resiliency uh, strategies look like? Oh, gosh, there's so many uh, great examples. I think the top one might be that uh, they are relying or referencing indigenous knowledges of their community mm-hmm. and involving elders, youth, and people of all ages um, that have that knowledge that can contribute to um, an adaptation uh, strategy. For example, indigenous knowledges, um, you can look to the Blackfeet tribe who has released an adaptation plan, I think, in 2018. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, their adaptation plan mentions uh, beaver habitat restoration. And that's a hot topic now across the country. But again, they, have, they and other tribes have been saying that beavers help um, maintain um, and can restore the riparian habitat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear on NPR almost every other week, whatever station, national or local, that beaver habitats um, are less prone to the severity or intensities of wildfires just because they're very much managed very well by the by the beavers. So that's kind of an example of indigenous knowledges. Um, uh, using that knowledge is an a- uh, adaptation uh, strategy. But also, as you mentioned, like the co-management of resources. Mm-hmm. Tribes are looking to their neighbors, indigenous or non-indigenous, um, to co-manage resources. I could give an example. Maybe the Nez Perce is trying to work with farmers um, on non-tribal land to kind of um, do riparian fish habitat restoration projects. I know that's kind of in, in, in the beginnings of it, um, but at least they're talking. Right. So that communication and multi-jurisdictional co-management of resources is now a highly recommended adaptation uh, strategy. So because, like you said, you know, our resources, our relatives move because they don't have, no longer have water, uh, access to adequate water or food resources, or it's too warm for them, so they move where it's cooler, you know. So it's really prompting communities to work better together. So those are a couple examples that I, I can give 
In regards to both reports, you know, we have a lot of both indigenous and we have non non indigenous listeners out there. And, and you and I have been talking about the work that yourself and, and other colleagues and um, in your contributions and in, in, in these both of these reports. And, you know, with the climate crisis, as most people come to understand it as or call it, uh, you know, and we we look at, you know, the loss of biodiversity, the economic dire straits that people are in, COVID, um, and all these other manifested violent forms of settler colonialism. And when we come back to, you know, trying to heal Mother Earth, you know, and the fact that we're such small numbers and in, in the larger scale of um, the five-fingered, as you said, what are some of your concerns that you see with um, just from your vantage point yeah, as a community member, you know, as a uh, professor, as somebody who's worked on, you know, these major reports? What are the things that you see are crucial that we need to focus on? In the context of working or working, I guess, in the context of indigenous communities responding um, or addressing climate change impacts, um, I think, um, and I'll reference the stack report. And this 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 was this was long. I, I thought about this long before the stack report originated um, or came to fruition. Is that you know we have to take a holistic uh, view again of of how we approach the care of our environment and and whatnot. A holistic um, approach that combines or balances traditional indigenous knowledges with the Western non-indigenous uh, knowledge uh, system and how that they can be combined to work together rather than competing or, or f- competing or fighting each other. Uh, there's no reason for that. Uh, indigenous peoples, we have been very much um, addressing different impacts, whether it's forced assimilation, removal, boarding school, trauma, everything. Uh, but now we have climate change that we have always, we, we, we're very adaptable in every sense, um, at, at everything that's been thrown at our people. So yeah, a holistic uh, approach. And that also means that you honor the gender roles of mm. your community members of your tribe. Mm. And the IPCC report also mentions how you know, indigenous peoples from different ages, backgrounds, genders, they have varying impacts on those um, people as an individual and as a, as, as a whole group, um, as humans. Um, but yeah, so we all have our own roles as uh, two-spirit, um, male or female. And then I think the second thing would be that tribal nations were sovereign nations and we have the right and the ability to, you know, self-determine, you know, self-govern ourselves uh, and recognizing that long existed and it still exists today. And that, that there again, the holistic approach uh, and the need for that approach to work together. Nikki, in wrapping up uh, our conversation, what is your message to the youth on being good ancestors? As a Navajo woman, indigenous woman who grew up and still lives part-time on the, the Nebuchadnezzar, Navajo, Navajo lands, I grew up without electricity, I grew up without running water, I grew up butchering our own foods, harvesting from the cornfield, 
herding sheep, riding horses bareback for hours or even a whole, for days. And having that intimate relationship really helps me, helps guide my work, my professional life, but also my personal life um, and my spirituality, my, my mental, physical health. And there's a lot of our young relatives who do not, who do not have that, relate, that intimate relationship with the earth like, like I had the privilege of having. They don't have that yet, but it can, it can be um, reconnected if they should choose to follow that journey. And I'm going to say to you, all you young people, your journey was laid out long before you were born or growing in your mother's womb. Your journey was laid out, and it's up to you to complete that journey as your ancestors intended. And what they intended literally was for you to survive and be strong and confident. And, you know, part of that is taking care of yourself, but also the the environment. You're very much tied to it. And I'll, I'll end with this. You know, my umbilical cord is buried in a sheep corral at my grandmother's home. And so that maintains that maintains that innate, intimate connection to the earth. And you know you don't have to um, you know bury your umbilical. I don't know where your kids' umbilical cords are buried, or but you have some tie to the environment um, where we have that intimate relationship. Um, so I would encourage all the young people to just maintain their strength and remember our ancestors survived so we could be here. So you could be continue to be a good relative as they intended. The moment of silence is over. And that was Nikki Cooley from the Diné Nation. She's one of several indigenous scientists that worked on the recently published IPCC 6 assessment report that was released in February of 2022. And that wraps up our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to Gary McKinney, Joshua Dean Sr., Nikki Cooley. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Ulali, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. The moment of silence is over. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains
us against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over